Okay, I just hit the button. You know what that means? We're live. We're well. We're yeah. We're live. We're live. But by the time people start listening to the episode, we won't be live anymore. We did record this live. So give me that train story. I know you had a train story. Okay, so I was on the subway coming here to do the podcast today, and so it was a little bit more crowded than normal. And again, there's construction going on on the weekends. So I'm standing, you know, by the by the door. And so we arrive at a station, door opens. Now there's another person standing on the other side. So I try to move away from the door, but I can't get around. This is one of those train cars where you have the doors and then you have a pole now right in between where the two sets of doors on either side are. So the two people who are getting off, they're right by the pole. And I normally would try to swing around the seat, that first seat. Now someone who's sitting there, who I guess is sleeping, has a luggage bag. So that's obstructing my my path so I can't come around in a circle I'm really pressed against the the seat and and the doorway which I don't like doing I normally like getting out of the way so I can't get out of the way the other person isn't moving either so they're they're kind of like hunched up against the other side of the seat and so as these two people leave one of the the people leaving has a luggage bag as well and so she's pulling the luggage bag and so the luggage bag hits me in the leg and then (laughs) rolls over my foot (laughs) As she's leaving. And then, of course, when she gets off, there's, like, someone standing at the platform. I think she runs into that person, too, because (laughs) she's, like, trying to manage the bag. In this past week, just heading into the the subway station, I've had a number of people kind of literally maneuver into me. Right. There was one woman getting off a train, and she was in front of... uh, She was, I think, like, next to me. So I waited for her to get off, but she managed to swing her bag and and hit me as she was exiting (laughs) the train. So this week has not been a, a good week on the subway so that that's how we'll start this podcast welcome to the david and ronald show podcast i'm david i'm ronald and we have another episode for you so thank you for joining us so today's episode we've talked about this topic a few times on the podcast but we've never covered it in depth so i think this episode is a good episode to spend some time on it and it's about buying your first home whether you're buying a house a co-op condo whatever the case can be most of us i think as you grow up and as you earn money, you want to move away from renting because renting becomes very expensive in the long run. Even if, if you, on a monthly basis, have a, an amount of rent that's you know, something that you can afford, that's not more than 50% of your take-home pay. And that's really the way I'd rather look at it is look at your take-home pay, not your, not your gross pay. I think the way government looks at it as they look at your your gross pay and they they used to say like it shouldn't exceed something like 30 or 40 percent of your gross pay yep it really should be it shouldn't exceed more than 25 to 30 percent of your take-home pay now anyone listening to this will also say realistically that's virtually impossible now because like if you live in manhattan for example so if you can afford to live in manhattan for example it's probably going to be more than 50 percent of your take-home pay and that's just terrible that you have to, to pay that much for. It really should not be more than 25 to 30% of your take-home pay. And if you want to buy a home, like a condo or a co-op in Manhattan, you know, for the average person, it's probably impossible now because you're looking at amounts that are you know, on the low end, $600,000 to $800,000 to buy to well over a million. And most of these new buildings that are coming up now... At least 1.5, right? Exactly. It's ridiculous amounts 
of money that the average person is not going to be able to afford for a number of reasons. One, your base salary will not be, you would have to be making several hundred thousand dollars a year in income. And even for, let's say a family of four with two adults working, that's not going to happen. I mean, with luxury rentals now, the way people are affording it is it'll be like three or four people who will pay into the rent and share like a two bedroom. So if it's like $5,000 a month in rent, you'll split that against four people. And even that's still fairly expensive to do, but it's not as bad because you have a nicer building. It's normally a new building with state-of-the-art features. You'll probably have someone in the lobby so that it's a more secure building. And so with like college students, for example, who don't want to live on campus, they might do something like that and split it four ways. But again, it's still a lot of money because if you're not working and you rely like on your parents, for example, to provide funding, well, that's an additional expenditure. So when you start looking over time, renting a place, even if you can't afford it, still becomes costly because you're just paying out the rent, that rent and you don't own anything. So eventually you want to look at it from the perspective of over time, I want to invest in something that I will own eventually. And even if you don't own it immediately now, most people probably, unless you have millions of dollars sitting around, excess money that you can afford to spend, you're probably going to have to take out a mortgage and pay that over the next 20 or 30 years. And then by that time, when you're ready to retire, you will have paid out the amount to own your home and you will finally own it and you can just relax and not worry about at least the mortgage part, but you'll still have to worry about things like uh, maintenance, property taxes, things like that, depending on the type of uh, property that you own. If you buy like a co-op, for example, it's normally going to be maintenance that you're paying monthly and your real estate taxes, things like that will be built into it. If your utilities are included, then that'll be all. It helps part offset it. right? Yeah. I mean, if you are looking at a higher maintenance, you want to see what's covered within that maintenance. Right. If it covers the utilities, great, like gas, electricity, water, you know, if it covers all, all that, it offsets it. Right. So the way you have to look at it is when you're renting a home, how much does that rent cost plus the utilities? If right. it's not included, many right. times it's not. Versus, obviously, you'll have your mortgage, but you have that maintenance fee. Right. How does that balance with what you're making? Right, exactly. And when you look at it long term, the benefits are just that you're not throwing money into a big black hole like when you rent. You just kind of keep feeding money down this big black hole to live in this place month to month. But then over time, you don't get any sort of return on your investment. Whereas when you buy someplace, you're going to own it. Or like in the case of a co-op, you're not really owning the unit. You're owning shares in the company that owns the building. But in essence, it's, it's still kind of your place. Right. And, you know, you're open to do a lot more things with a place that you know that, okay, it makes it more homely right. for you. But in an apartment, you can't really do as much. You know, one good example would be mounting a TV. A lot wouldn't want you to do that right. because unless they already had it there, they don't want you putting in holes like that into their walls because then they have to patch it up when you leave, do whatever. They don't want that. You can't change your lights to what you want. So with a co-op or condo, you know, co-ops obviously ha are a bit restrictive, right. but not that restrictive. It really depends on what you're looking to do. Right. Um, you know, obviously, if you're knocking down a wall, you need approval for that. But if you're just keeping everything as it is and making some cosmetic changes, usually that's not too much of an issue. Yeah, and in those cases, because you, you're owning the, the, the unit, yep. you are willing to make the investment into those 
improvements. Whereas if you're renting, you know that in one year, two years, when you're going to move again, you're not going to want to invest a significant amount of money, even if you were allowed to, even if your landlord allows you to make those changes, you don't want to invest that money in there because you can't take it with yeah, you. Yeah, you don't gain any out of it, but doing it in a home with, that you're buying, you could sell it off because everything that you've done is obviously always to make it better. Right. And you sell it off a few years from when you bought it and make more, but obviously there are other factors you have to look at if it's worth more at that time. It depends on neighborhood and everything like that. So there are a lot of factors you want to look into when you're looking for that home of yours. Right. And also when you look at when people do decide to sell their homes, they sell it for various reasons. Some may be because we're going to move out of state because the cost of living is lower. Or, for example, I know many people when they, when they uh, get older, if they're living like in the Northeast, they'll say, oh, I'm going to retire to Florida. You hear it all the time where the weather is nice and warm down there and you know, taxes are different. So they'll, they'll move down there. So that might be one reason. Another reason may be that you need to upgrade your home because now you have a family and your family's growing and you need more space. Or perhaps you're getting to a point where you don't need that home. You know, when you initially bought this home, it was affordable, but it was, there were a lot of rooms and you don't need all these extra rooms now. It's just really big and you can downsize. So if you want to downsize and save on things like property taxes, or maybe you find a place that's closer or, more, or has more conveniences to you. For example, maybe the home is closer to markets and shops and things like that that you enjoy going to or that you need easy access to. It's better to, to move to a different location. So that might be another reason to do it. Also, some homes are like in the middle of nowhere. And sometimes you'll have the situation where, oh, yeah, my Internet's really bad out there. So you, and whenever there's bad weather, traveling is a nightmare. So in those sort of situations, you might decide to find a different place. There are lots of reasons why you would decide to get your own home. So we're going to talk about what it's like to get your first home and what that experience is like. And Ronald, you've gone through that process a few years ago of going through, you know, renting a place, renewing your lease, and then finally decided, okay, it's time now where I don't want to just keep throwing money into the, to the black hole. I want to buy a place. So just give us your take on your general thought process making that transition, what were you thinking at that time and like the reasoning behind that? Yep. So a lot of it was really about the increasing costs of rent every year was just going up, going up, going up. So when I initially moved out, it was really only supposed to be two years or so. It ended up being three years when, you know, going through rental, I was thinking of the same rental, but by the third year, it just got ridiculously high. And at that point, I was ready serious that I really wanted to find a place that I could just buy, own. And I, I knew already what I wanted, what type of place I wanted. And when you're looking for a place, you always want to look at neighborhood. That's right. very important, right? And what's in that neighborhood? Are you looking for, you know, you're looking for your local supermarket. Obviously, the bank that you bank with, you want that close around so you can get money. And then also, you just want to look at the overall how is the neighborhood? Is it safe? Are there schools around? Are there parks? Things like that that just all come together Grocery as well stores, as restaurants, like food. Transportation. And yeah, exactly. And transportation. So you want to make sure you have all those things covered because once you've committed to that home, you're pretty much settling in. Right. right? So for me, transportation was a huge piece to this. And you know, today, all, I, all it is is across the street from me. And that's great because I could just walk across the street, get to the train, and I'm good. For a supermarket, it's probably two or three blocks away. You know, again, it's close. So if you're carrying a lot of stuff, you're buying a lot of groceries, 
you want something close to you. Right. And you also want to take into account like bad weather. For example, right. if let's say you know, we're still in winter now and we haven't had too much snow this year, but imagine a snowstorm where you have feet of snow and you need to go do some grocery shopping and hopefully you would have prepared in advance. But if you don't or if something comes up and you need to go to the grocery store, you know, if you have to trek two or three blocks, that can be very tedious to do in the snow, especially in, in different neighborhoods of the city. And depending on where you live, this will vary how well they plow those areas because most of the time the primary roads get plowed first. The sidewalks are the responsibilities of the shops and the building owners to take care of. And in most cases, they don't need to do that until the, the snow stops. Right. Exactly. So you always got to keep that in the back of your mind. Where is it that you want to look for? And usually when you start looking at posts online, depending on the site, they'll have that type of information for right. you. And you want to read through that and just make sure this is what you want because you're committing yourself pretty much. And once you've started looking and you found a place, you obviously have to schedule a viewing. And the best thing to do when you're scheduling a viewing is that you want to pick something that where it's a sunny day. Right. right. Pick a sunny day. There's a lot of daylight. And that is because you want to see how the sun comes in from the windows, hitting all the walls. And you also can see all the little cracks. Right that might be there or what you might have to do once you've moved in, right? A lot of times it's not, hey, you bought a place, you move in, you just put in furniture and that's it. You might want to repaint. You have to fix fix the walls because a lot of that you want to do before you've moved in. Right. Otherwise, trying to do that and moving things back and forth, that's going to be very difficult. Yeah, it's a lot easier when you have an empty space and you want to paint and you just have to throw a tarp right. down on the ground, paint it and not worry about moving furniture or moving everything around. Or even if, if you just moved and everything's still in boxes, yep. having to shift that from one wall to the other. It ta- it's very time-consuming to have to move everything, paint, let it dry, and then move everything back, and then do another area. Yep. And then you also want to look at what the electrical looks like, right, um, in terms of outlets. Are there enough outlets? Right. Because if you're moving in and now you realize, oh, there's not enough outlets for me to plug in all the stuff that I need to. And this is for every single room you have to look at, you know, kitchen, bedroom, living room bathroom you need to make sure that has the outlets that you you need otherwise now you're gonna have to pull electrical right and and if you don't know how to do that yourself then you have to hire a licensed electrician to do it and and generally you know if you're doing anything yourself if you're not licensed to do it and you don't specialize in it there are certain things like replacing a light switch things like general things that you can learn how to do assuming that you have a breaker box you turn off your breaker everything's wired properly and legitimately and you're able to do it safely but you know that's another thing as you're talking about looking at electrical to also take a look at where your breaker box is and those breakers to make sure that they meet what the industry standards are and i think most breaker boxes you'll see something like 15 amp breakers and 20 amp breakers in there 20 amps are usually for the higher powered outlets that you that you might need right and then the other bit is also check the water check the faucets check the way the pipes are does it have all the appropriate equipment so that you can turn off the water, uh, turn right. it back on? If something's broken, you'll want to get that checked before, again, you move in or check with a realtor and say, hey, this, this looks to be broken. Are they going to fix it or are they going to sort of negotiate on pricing? Right. right? Because you want to look at everything and see, well, is this place worth what they're trying to sell it for? Right. And obviously, there's more research that you'll have to do. And many times your realtor can help you with this or whomever's working on it. 
where they'll look at what's the pricing? How does it look? Is everything worth what it is? Are all the appliances there? Are the appliances missing? Will they be taking the appliances with them when they move out? What do you have to put back in there? Right. And many times, a lot of those items are negotiated because if you're not going to have something that you saw was there when you did the viewing, then the right. pricing has to shift because of that. Exactly. You can negotiate that, that price down. I hear stories all the time about when people are looking to buy homes, they will find things like problematic areas. And if you find problematic areas, you okay. need to flag those areas because either the current owner will make repairs and most of the time current owners will do what they can to spruce up the place before they try to sell. And if they're working with, with a realtor that works with the owners, yes, they're going to be advised that yes, you should do X, Y, and Z so that you can boost up the price legitimately because you've made these improvements. Even something as simple as a fresh coat of paint makes a huge difference in the home. Even if it's not necessarily the color of paint that the new owner will take, the idea is that if you take something that's pretty generic, like a white paint or an off-white, cleaning up the space and making it look nice makes a difference. But same thing with anything else. For example, a leaking faucet or pipes that are damaged, what you'll need to do is it's going to be a tough sell if you're trying to get someone to commit to a price and you have old pipes, things that have not been replaced in years. So you'll want to take a look at those things as the homeowner before you're selling it to make those improvements. And that way, the person coming in who's looking at it during an open house will say, okay, these, this is new equipment or fairly new materials. And so now you can get that, that higher price. Right, exactly. And then another key bit is look at the flooring. You know, right. Is it what you want? Yeah. Do you, are you going to change it around? Does it meet your requirements? And also the moldings on the wall. Make sure all of that's in place because if it's not, again, you'll want that looked into and see... What can, you, what can be done with that? Yeah. Or if you're going to have to do work yourself. Because you have to remember, in your mind, how much money is it going to cost you now to do those repairs? You know, it's not about saving money enough for the, the mortgage, saving enough money for the closing, all this. It's do you have enough money also to do all the, the work that you'll need to do? Exactly. Usually I'd say you want at least another 10 or 20K to account for all that right. and what you have to fix. Yeah, and generally I think when you're buying a place you don't want to have to throw in a lot of that extra money right after buying it to make those sort of improvements. Again, unless you are sitting on a surplus of cash, which most people probably aren't, you know, the, the average individual. And so you don't want to have to throw more money in. Yes, over the period of time that you own the property, over 20, 30 years, you can gradually make improvements to it. But that first year, you're going to be spending a significant amount of money between but paying for a lawyer and the initial closing cost and down payments and all that stuff that comes into to play, that can be a significant amount of money that you have to put down. And so if you have to put that down, the last thing you want to do is spend another 10000 or $15,000 to make improvements. And going back to what you were saying about the floor, for example, if it's a carpeted floor, you know, I would just make sure that like under that carpet that the floor, especially if it's a wood floor, that that's all in, in good, decent condition. Because a lot of times, you know, you can throw a carpet down on anything and it looks nice on the top layer. But under there, you could have a rotted floor, for example, and that's not good. Or, for example, you may have paintings up on the wall, and you might just want to take a peek and just make sure there's not a big hole that, that's hidden behind a, a portrait or, or a picture or something or covered up by a piece of furniture. So not to say that someone would intentionally do that, but there are cases where you may see that happen, and I would just suggest just checking everything, making sure that everything is in good condition. And that kind of brings up a point 
you, you jumped to this about talking to like a, a real estate agent or a broker of, you know, what's your thinking about using a real estate agent or a broker and definitely one that works on behalf of, of a potential buyer? I think they're very helpful. They're going to know a lot of things that you're not going to know yourself. And there's a lot that they can guide you through. So again, when you're buying, in my case, I bought a co-op and we've talked about this. There's no checklist that's out there that steps you through literally beginning to end. Right. Because every experience can be slightly different. There's it changes. Yes. Right. There are some general things that most people will do and that we've already kind of mentioned to start with when you're just looking at the home, but in every situation it can be different. And so you kind of need that extra pair of eyes right. to help and, you. And they, they give you advice, right? So what I just said, that's the type of information they're going to give you. They'll, they'll walk in with you and say, oh, check this, check that. Or did you see this? Did you notice that? So there are many things that they're going to see that you're not going to see because you don't know to look for that. Right. And many times when you're doing a viewing, you don't want to go by yourself either. You probably want to bring a friend, a relative. That way they can look at things differently than how you're going to look at it. You're going to definitely miss something. Or you'll see something and say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, and that's what I did. I had someone come with me to take a look at it and see what is it that I'm missing. And then the realtor will say, oh, what about this? Did you notice this? Right. Or, oh, hey, great. They actually have a doorman here. They can do this for you. They can do that for you. Oh, by the way, just think during the holiday season, you'll have to take care of them right. because they're doing this for you. They're doing that for you. And you're like, oh, okay, that's great. But it, again, it's not just the in the nows. They're also telling you in the future, think right. about this, think about that. Exactly, because that's what they do for a living. And right. they may have sold other units or helped yeah. sell other units for the building. Now, let me make a clear differentiation in terms of when you're dealing with an, a, a real estate agent or broker is that there are those real estate agents and brokers that work on behalf of the owner and those that will work on behalf of you, the buyer. Right. So we're not talking about using that same person. No, absolutely. Because you need to have someone who is there to be an advocate for you. Same thing, you know, anytime you're dealing with real estate, there will always be those agents that work on behalf of the owner. But the thing is that you need someone, you need an advocate that is going to work for your interest. As a buyer. As a, a exactly, seller, as right. a buyer. And it can't be that same person because they cannot, no matter how much they say it, work on both parties' behalf right. fairly because of the fact that, look, you're trying to make the sale. And so and the other part is, is who's paying the, the broker or the agent. If, for example, the owner is paying for the broker or agent and they're trying to you know, help you buy that unit, of course they're going to push to get you to buy that unit. Right. Not, every, not every agent is necessarily going to do that. There are agents who could probably do both. But I think one who is very reputable will say, look, I, I'm here to represent the owner, so I can't also represent you, the buyer. Right. And not in every case is there going to be like a fee for an agent. If they're working on behalf of a company... In my case, I was using Douglas Elliman. Right. So they work on behalf of you, yes, but you're not paying them to do the job for you because they're getting paid through the agency, essentially. Right. But they work on behalf of you. But that is one thing you just want to make sure that you understand when you meet with them. They should tell you who they work on behalf of, right. but if they don't, you should get that clarity so that you understand what's going on here. Because you, you might get halfway into it and suddenly you realize, oh, wait, 
he's on behalf of the seller. Right. So yeah, they're giving you information, but they're not really doing much for you. They're exactly. just trying to sell it to you. Exactly. So that you just go for it. Right. And you know, they've done their job. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're they're gonna get paid for it and they make the sale. They're gonna make they're gonna get their commission. But the thing is that they're not looking out for your best interest. And that's what you want is someone to look out for your best interest. The other thing about using a agent or a broker that represents you is that they may also know of properties that are available that meet your criteria. So they do the filtering for you. You tell them what you're looking for and they can identify those properties because they may have access to a portfolio of properties that are on the market that you can't find on a website or through any other means. Yeah, absolutely. When I had reached out for the, the place that I was interested in, he actually said, oh, you know what? There's actually a few other openings in the building that aren't on the site at the moment. Let me send that to you, but also let me know if you have specific requirements. But, you know, they base it off of the place that you pick. Exactly. Like, okay, there's this. But then they send you some other ones, and a lot of times you just schedule it for the same day as best as possible. So for me, I was essentially looking at four apartments in the same building. Right. And you sort of just work your way through them, and, you know, they'll ask you, what do you think of these? Do you still want this one or do you want that one? Right. Do you want to think about it? Here's a difference in pricing, but here, this is the square footage versus this one. You might get smaller square footage, but you get a balcony, for example. So you get all those little details that you just want to make sure you keep in mind. And you don't commit to anything, obviously, when you're right. doing the viewing. It's simply walk around, look, take your own mental notes, and then step back out. And the realtor will just say, hey, Think about it. Send me an email in a couple of days. What, what do you want to do with it? How do you want to progress with it? And that pretty much closes out that first bit, right? Right. The viewing. And if none of them worked out, you're not committed to picking one of those. You just keep going. They'll work with you for other places because obviously they want the business, right? Exactly. Right. And because the other thing is that they're hoping that if your experience with them worked out well, that you might refer them or their company to someone else, to a friend to do the same thing. And so they obviously want that positive relationship and positive feedback and a positive experience. So that's really important. Now, on estimate, how long was your search process? I'd probably say between three to four months. Three to four looking. months. Yep. And when, when you were looking, were you primarily looking yourself first or did you pretty much just provide the specifications to the the real estate agent, real estate broker, and then they provided you with Yep, so all of that I was doing by myself. I was just going off different websites, looking for my specific requirements mm -hmm. and seeing what was there, jotting down some notes, looking at pricing, talking to friends about neighborhoods, things like that. Then it was when I found a couple of places and they were all associated to Douglas Elliman. Mm -hmm. So on their website, you, know, you click that you're interested, right. put in your information, and then they... They pretty much get assigned to a specific agent at the time. Right. And that agent ended up being the one that continued to work with me because, you know, obviously once you're tied to the person, they have an interest to help you out right. and see what they can do for you. So initially, yes, it was just me looking for things randomly. And at that point, you know, you, you start from being half serious to be fully serious right. and committed to it because you'll get frustrated initially when you're looking for places and you say, well, this meets three of my four criteria. Do I just settle for that or do I find something that meets four of four? And I'll tell you now the answer is make sure it meets all your criteria. Don't settle for three out of five or 
four out of five or something like that. It should be five out of five. Right, because the, the other thing is that you're going to regret it down the road that, okay, it didn't meet this criteria. And look, unless you're going to somehow magically get the, the money, especially, again, you're, you're probably going to need to have a mortgage and you're going to pay it for the next 20, 30 years, that all of a sudden you can't just turn it around and sell it. Because if you got your mortgage from the bank, the bank expects to, because the bank is putting forth the funds to buy the unit, and then in essence, you're paying the bank back. The bank's not going to let you flip this home and, and sell it to someone else until you've paid them back. So you have to keep that in mind. So you're committed to, to this property until that time. And if that's going to be a 20 or 30 year period, you don't want to be in a situation where 10 months down the road, you say, well, it doesn't meet this criteria. And now I can't do anything about it. It's really important, like what you said, if you have four pieces of criteria that you have to meet, that you keep looking until you find the four out of four. Yeah, absolutely. And speak to friends, speak to family, other people who've gone through it before, as well as the realtor, right? Just ask, what are the gotchas? What is it that you found after you bought your place that you regretted? Right. You want to? That's necessarily a huge regret, right? It could just be a small little thing, and they just say, you know what? I wish I had looked for this criteria. Then yeah. you just start adding to your list of items. Oh, okay. Let me right. add it there. And you constantly hear about people wanting to avoid first time buyer's remorse. And that's the thing. You're doing this for the first time, so you don't have the experience. So the most important part of doing it is to consult with as many people as possible to get their perspective, get information. And again, your experience may be very different than what anyone else has experienced. But at the end of the day, you want to go through that process of getting as much information as possible. So you build in your own mind, here's the checklist for myself of what I need to be looking out for, what I should anticipate, how I should prepare so that when you go into this, you are as prepared as possible. And there are some people who've bought two or three homes over a lifetime and will still get into that situation where they never get that perfect place because, again, you know, you settled too quickly for this or that. And sometimes you won't be able to realize some of those issues until after you, you've moved in and you spent some months or even some years living in there where you start to experience things like, okay, this building has problems with their HVAC, this building has problems with their plumbing, things like that, that you couldn't have foreseen when you first bought the place. But later on, as you live there, you start to realize, okay, th these are some of the issues that appear that now I understand that I need to look out for these. And sometimes you can't prepare for those. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sometimes there are features that a place might have and you say, hey, that's great. And you don't realize it's not that great until you actually do it. And you right. say, oh, okay, this isn't the greatest thing after all. I'll give you one example for, for me when they said, oh, um, you know, air conditioning, heating, you know, it's built into the building. So you don't have to buy an air conditioner. Right. I'm like, oh, hey, great. I don't have to buy an air conditioner. It's central air. Perfect. That sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds great on paper. And then you move in. It ended up being a really hot summer. And that central air wasn't that great. And, you know, there's three units. Cool. But the air coming out of it wasn't cold. Right. It was cool air, not yeah. cold air. If you compared it to a, you know, regular air conditioner that you can control on your own. Right. It was different. So that's something you want to look at. If it is something like central air, hey, yes, that always sounds great. My whole apartment will always be at a great temperature. Wrong. Right. It's never perfect. And, I mean, I used to work in an office space that was a, a very large space. And we had four systems, four units. There was, I think, one package system. 
and then there were three units that were split systems. So you have like the the fan blowers in the space, and then the condensers and the compressors were were up on top of the building. And our problem was that the entire office was never the same temperature. One area was always too cold, two areas were always too hot, and one was kind of like okay. So I know that central air, that's one of the big problems. Go to a hotel room sometimes. If you have those units that have the big vents in there, you you set it to a certain temperature, and one moment it's freezing in there, the next moment it's really hot, and you can't get that temperature perfect. And hotel rooms, the problem is they're smaller enclosed spaces, but they're throwing these very high-powered units, like probably like 18,000 BTU units in there. So it's like you turn it on, and in a matter of minutes, it's freezing in there. But then as soon as you turn it off, the heat returns. So, so it's not great. And here where you deal with like a co-op or a condo building, part of it is you don't have any control over the induction units that are in your, your unit. And those could be old units, or they could be brand new. And then... The system that where the condensers and the compressors are, which are usually on the roof, you have no control over that, so you don't know the age of them. So if the building hasn't maintained those systems well or hasn't upgraded them periodically, then you can end up with a situation where, okay, it's not servicing the property because the units are too old. They're unable right. to cool efficiently. Yep, absolutely. So th- these are just little things to think about, and that's just one example of it. That's not to say, hey, it's the worst idea ever. But it's just something you want to think about and maybe questions you should ask. If, you, if it is central air, ask them, when was the last maintenance on it? When was right. it put in? And they might not have the answer. They might have the answer. But that's, that's key to understanding that. Another bit is understanding for maintenance. When was the last time maintenance increased? Right. If they say five years ago, well, you know what? In your mind, you should think it's probably going to increase at some point right. once you've moved in or not. Or how often does it increase? They might say every couple of years or every other year, you know, something like that. It's just important to know, and it's a fair question to ask. I, I think it's important just to ask questions in general. There's never a wrong question, right? Because if they can't give you that information, they'll say it. But if they're not giving you that information, there's a problem there. Too. Yeah. Again, you want to you want to do your due diligence and make sure that you have any questions answered. Because once you sign on the dotted line, once you're committed, it's not something that you you can get out of. And maintenance is a cost because. If you're pretty much paying a mortgage, you're going to be paying your mortgage to the bank or the financial institution that loaned you the money to buy the the unit. So you're paying them back over 20, 30 years. In addition, monthly, you're paying maintenance to the building to cover things like cleaning of the hallways and the lighting and things like that. But also for co-ops, your property taxes are built into that and it's split across all the owners in, in the building. In the case of a condo, it's more like a house where you're paying property taxes yourself. So in those cases, usually your property taxes, you're probably going to be, be paying property taxes annually. With maintenance, you may not see annual increases. It all depends on how they computed the maintenance number for the year. And if they kind of uh, padded it, then you might not see necessarily an increase annually. But if they didn't, then you might see it Right. A little bit more frequently. Or, you know, if there are unexpected costs, something right. like, hey, we had to repair the roof. But right. because of that, we had to allocate money from one repair that was already covered to doing that. Because obviously <laughs> you want a, a functional roof right. uh, for the building. Or, again, going back to AC, if they need to replace the entire system, that's a right. lot of money. Yeah. And they need that money coming from somewhere. Right. And who's it going to come from? Yeah, and to understand, you know, how co-ops work is you're owning shares of pretty much a corporation or an LLC that owns the building. And so they have a budget to work with annually that comes out of your maintenance. 
to run the building, pay for, for the staff that helped to run the building, the engineers and the porters and uh, lobby attendants, all that. So that's where that pool of money comes from. So when they have an allocated X number of dollars or thousands of dollars toward air conditioning or heating or thing, repairs like that, that's the budget. And if they exhaust that budget, then what happens is, one, the work doesn't get done, or two, if they do get the money from somewhere else, you know that the maintenance is going to have to go up because it has to cover those increased costs. So that's something to, to really keep in mind when you're budgeting for yourself is, yes, now you have your mortgage in the case of a co-op now you, or, or, or a condo. Now you have to also, or even a house, now you also have to take into account your maintenance. And then if, let's say, your electric or your utilities are not included or partially included, add those costs in. And then everything else that you still have to pay for. Yep. And then I, I guess we can move on to the, the other piece of this is timing. Right. Right. You have to understand timing because there's the looking, they're trying to find a place, but we have to talk about getting the mortgage, right? So if you right. don't have the money and you need to go to the bank, you need to start talking with banks right. to find out, you know, what are the interest rates? Exactly. Obviously, you want to you wanna look around. You don't want to just stick to one bank and just say, oh, there's my bank, so I'm going to deal with it. Look at small banks. Look at big banks. See what they're offering as the interest rates because it'll vary just a bit. And right now, interest rates are pretty low. Yeah, they're, they're pretty low right now. The, the Fed like just dropped uh, interest rates by another uh, quarter, quarter point, I believe. Yep. So uh, it, it's good and bad because interest rates, if you're getting a mortgage, it's good. If you're hoping for that interest in your savings account, well, it really is not looking good either. Right. So, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't pan out. It, it's kind of a, a win-lose situation depending yeah. on who you are. Yeah, but, you know, once you've narrowed down which bank you want to go for, you want to essentially get that pre-approval for a mortgage, right. and that could take some time. So, really, as you're looking, you want to start doing the bank piece, too, to get that pre-approval. Right, because, because you have to provide that pre-approval letter yeah, or document to the to pretty much yeah. The, so once you yeah once you've committed to a contract and you're ready to hey let let's get this going I want this place the seller says okay well let's let's get the paperwork done right. they're gonna want that you have some letter from the bank saying you can back this up and you can pay for it right. in one way or another and that's what that pre approval letter is for from the bank right but the bank's also gonna ask you for a lot of information right, right? they're gonna have to look at you know if it's your bank obviously they can get into your bank account and see. What do you have? They just need authorization to look at that information right. because, they, you know, it's a different branch essentially. But they'll need to know where you work, how much money you make. They'll have to just look at credit card statements, things like that. And they right. can ask you for any of the stuff. Yeah, because they need to make sure that you have solid credit. You're going to be able to pay this monthly mortgage over the next 20, 30 years before they loan it out. They have to be able to do their due diligence and show that you have a low risk of defaulting on payment because they don't want to have to deal with that. If you're a high risk day one, they're not going to want to, to, to put the money out. Or if they do, they're going to want something, something as collateral to ensure that if something happens, that there's a way for them to recover right. the money. Yep. And again, that can go really quickly or that can take a while. That might take up to two weeks sometimes to get right. that pre-approval. Right. Then once they get that letter, you know, they'll send you essentially that letter for your sign. You send it back and, you have it, but note that that pre-approval also does expire. Right. So you also want to be aware of, well, how long is it going to expire? It might be three months. You know, generally, I believe that's what it is, and you'll have it there, so at least you can provide it. But just remember that this whole process 
isn't a three month process. This right. could be a six to nine month process. Yeah. So you have to keep in mind, oh, this letter's about to expire. Now I have to go back to the bank and say, hey, can I get this extended? Right. And many times these things aren't free. They charge you. You know, yeah, anywhere well, they can charge you money. Exactly, charge because, you because banks and financial institutions, they have to make money somehow. Right. It's not just open a checking account, opening a savings account, leave money in there, and it's all yeah. free. Most banks now, unless you maintain a monthly average balance, they charge you fees for everything. Right. From just leaving your money there, because if you don't maintain X amount of dollars monthly, then we're going to charge you a monthly fee. Yep. We're going to charge you for every check you write. We're going to charge you for wire transfers, things like that. So they char- they're a business. Right. So they have to make money somehow. And yep. if they pretty much can't make money off of you, it doesn't help them. It doesn't help them grow. Yeah. And if you want to lock that interest rate, which you should, again, you pay money for that. Right. It's not free. You could keep it varying, right? Like, let's say, for example, you just know that interest rates won't change significantly. Right. You don't have to pay that money to lock it in. Right. But it's in your best interest to lock it in because that's what they'll commit to and give you. But if you don't lock it in, it's going to be whatever that interest rate is at the time that you're ready to close everything out. Right. J- just think of it like when you're converting uh, cash from U.S. dollars to, to uh, the rate for another country. That rate changes every day. So even like if you use a credit card, if you go to Canada, for example, and you have dinner and you charge it to your credit card, if it doesn't post for three or four days, it's the day that it posts when they do the conversion. So it's the same thing here with interest rates. You know, the interest rates right now are low. And so if you were to lock it in, you, you know, the problem is, yeah, you could have gotten an interest rate that was lower a week later. But the thing is that if you're getting a really good rate, then you want to lock it in so that you don't end up experiencing it going the other direction and paying more later on on that mortgage. Right. And to keep in mind, Big bank does not mean best service or right. best interest rate. We, we won't mention any specific names in terms of financial institutions and banks, but you do have to do your research. Ask your friends where they got their mortgages from, who they work with, because the experiences will be different. And even like one person's experience where it's really good for someone else, it could be really bad because you're not working with the same people. You're not necessarily working with the same branch or the same uh, local office. So you want to keep that all in mind. Yeah, absolutely. It, it might just come down to the person that's assigned to you. Right. Uh, maybe some are better, some aren't as good. But just think about, again, like I said, it could be large, small, but you want to obviously pick a reliable bank, a bank right. that has a, a good background. It, it's known to be reliable. Again, check online, check with people, see if someone's banked there before. Do you have an account there? Right. right. Don't just look for your own account. Because, hey, that's the easiest thing. It's actually not the easiest right. thing by it, just it, using your own Exactly. Bank. It's, it's not always guaranteed that using your own bank. There, there are some benefits because you have banking history that it could be better. Like, for example, if you work with, if you do keep more money in your bank account and you have a dedicated banker that you work with, then they may be able to tap into the resources and get you better rates and be able to get you a team to work with you that can get better results than if you were to just lo- go to a local branch and just get someone who's available to work with you. That could be a different situation. So we're not saying that, but what you should be, be willing to do is to shop around to make sure that you're getting the best rate, the best service. You should talk to other people to get their experience so that when you do it, because once you go down that road, you can't just back out and say, I'm not going to do it anymore. Because for example, going back to, to that pre-approval letter, once you have that and you're using that as 
the collateral say, I have the banking of this bank to get me the mortgage to buy this property. You can't then say, well, you know, I don't want to use this bank now. So let me go get pre-approval somewhere else and, and do it. Because when you go to that, that owner, it's gonna, the bell's going to go off in their head. And they're going to say, well, there's something fishy going on here. Because they got pre-approval here. Yeah, they got pre-approval from this other bank. But they're hopping, hopping around now. Do I need to be worried about that? And that can affect you. So you need to be very serious and you need to be very targeted in terms of, yes, I'm committed to using this bank. I got the pre-approval letter. I'm going to submit it now and I'm going to work this until it's done. Yeah, and just note that, you know, at any point, a seller can just choose to say, you know what, I'm not going to sell to this person. Right. Or it could be, you know, if it gets down to the board, they can just reject you for whatever reason, too. And let's talk about that because that's the other side of it when you're dealing with, with co-ops and condos, that it's not as simple as just the homeowner selling you the home. You also have to deal with the co-op or a condo board to get approval from them to be able to buy the property. Right, exactly. You have to meet their criteria, but you don't know what their criteria is. You don't know what they're, what they're looking for. Right. You know, you can only present yourself in the best way. But I was even told by the realtor, hey, someone was, you know, all they went through everything and they just had to go through the interview. The day after the interview, they got rejected. They don't know what it was. They said, nope, all their you know, money was there, funding. You know, they presented themselves really well. They had a, you know, good office job, right. this and that. But they can't tell you why. And they'll never tell you why they chose to reject the person. Right. They reserve that right to do that. But right. you can only do your best to represent yourself in the best way when you're meeting with the board to say, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. And there's no way to really guide someone on how to best answer a question. You just have to be yourself at that point. Right. And, and, and just answer things as honest as you can, but, you know, still present yourself as a good person. Yeah. And there was one question where they asked me, and they say, if you, if you had the opportunity to be on the board, w- would you do it? Right. And I, I thought about that for a moment. I was like, you know, I, I would like to be on the board. It's an exciting and great opportunity. And, you know, you say certain things, but you don't, you don't know if you really right, want to be right. on the board. There's a lot of commitment there that you'd have to take. But, hey, maybe it's something that I might want to do 10 years down the line. Maybe not when I first move in, but 10, 10 years down the line, you might see, hey, there's some bad decisions or maintenance going up right. or things that haven't been made better. Maybe being on the board would be a good idea. Yeah. The, the one thing I will say about being on a board, uh, and I've never been on a board but I will say from hearing stories that it's not always what it seems to be because when you have, let's say you have a board of seven people who are the decision makers on behalf of the co-op or the condo to make decisions in the best interest, it's like politics. There, there's a lot of, of competitiveness in that and you don't really know what goes on behind the scenes in terms of how people make decisions, what contracts are in place, what agreements are in place with the different like management companies that they use. And so when you don't know what goes on behind the scenes, you, want, you easily want to say, yeah, I'm going to make these changes to make these improvements, which is commendable. The problem is that you don't know what's been done before. So if I ever walked into dealing with a board, for example, I need to know that, look, everything is open to be dealt with accordingly. There's nothing that's locked in stone where this property management company that helps us manage the building, we have a 10-year contract with them that's non-negotiable. You hear that and automatically it's like, well, here's the problem. Your property management company doesn't do the job. So I want to fire them, but I can't because the contract that that was signed by the previous board says you can't fire them for 10 years. That's a problem. And 
there are situations where, you know, you'll have boards where, oh, yeah, they knew someone who, who worked there. And so now they play favorites and, and they go off and, and they do it. And depending on what your state laws are, you, there are limitations as to what you can do. So that, that's what I'll say about, you know, being on a board, for example, is that it's always easy from being an outsider to say, these are the things you should change. The problem is you don't know the people who sat on that board and who did this job before you, how they, you know, whether or not they did things in the best interest of the building or in the best interest of themselves. Yep. So I think that covers that bit of it. I think the other piece to this in terms of a person that you'd want involved is a real estate attorney. Right. And that's very important. And, you know, generally they'll, they'll charge you a flat rate. They'll tell you what that rate is at the very, very beginning. You pay half of it at the beginning and then you right, pay deposit. the other half after the closing pretty right. much. But you definitely want a real estate attorney because all the paperwork that needs to be done that's handled between the seller, bank, yourself, and all that, you want someone to do that for you. They, yeah. they do all the, like, the, the lien searches for you. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Right. And you don't want to do that yourself. Right. You want someone to tell you, you just have to sign here, and this is the reason why right. you need all this stuff. But the caveat to that, I will say, is that with all this paperwork, as much as there's so much legalese in it, read the paperwork. Don't just hand it off to the real estate attorney yeah. to read it and just say, sign on the dotted line, because there may be things in there that you didn't agree to or you don't want to agree to or that you don't understand, and you need to read that. Uh, for what I do, I read a lot of contracts, and I you know, make changes, and I make edits and things like that. But you know, when it comes to certain legalese that needs to, to be clarified, yes, my recommendation is always you know, we need to speak to to an attorney, to the appropriate, appropriate attorney to deal with these things. Uh, we went through uh, at my office about uh, eight, nine months ago, renewing our lease. And it was the same thing, pages and pages of, of lease documents to look through. But you have to have a real estate attorney look at it because there are certain things that apply to things like state laws and things like that, that you may not understand, that you're not familiar with, but that the lawyer will understand. They will be able to explain to you, this is what it means. Yes, you have to do this. No, this is something that's non-standard and we should not agree to it. Things like that. So it's very important to work with a real estate attorney when dealing any time when you're dealing with, with real estate and real estate contracts. Right. And don't just stick with email as your form of communication with that attorney. Right. You want to have calls with them. Yes. Have them explain things to you. You know, do a screen share or something or just meet them in person if it's possible. Right. Um, you know, the first two times I did it, I met the person in person so that they can walk me through documents, things like that. Right. Following that, it would just be phone calls to just explain, all right, so I'm going to send you this document. This is what this document's for. Right. And they, they even will say, read it through. If there's anything you don't understand, let me know before you sign it, and they'll explain it to you even further. Right. So if you have a good lawyer, <laughs> they should be telling you, you to read it yourself as well. Right. Make sure you understand everything. They're going to give you a summary of what is stated there, but there might be, like like you said, something that, isn't a red flag to them, but is to you because you know yourself best. Right, exactly. Or or they, there may be something about, you know, things that were agreed to as to what would be in the unit. And look, the lawyer's not going to know. The lawyer wasn't there with you when you were looking at these things. Right. So you need to tell the lawyer, oh, yeah, you know, these things were, were in there. This is what the homeowner agreed to do before we we would uh, we would sign on the dotted line. We we mentioned that okay these these fixtures were damaged and we want those removed or replaced or whatever. 
and they agreed to do that. And it's not in here. Right. And again, get it in writing because if it's not in writing, your verbal agreement, your emails do not necessarily mean that it's something agreed to. You have to have it in any of these written agreements that are executed by both parties. So it's yeah. very important. Yeah, but I think what gets me a lot of times with when you're reading some documents, they're, they're all written in old English too. Yeah. And, and it, you, you wonder, like, what does this mean exactly because right. of the way they write it? But certain documents have to be the, written the, like that because that's well, how yeah, the courts know it, right? This is what I would argue in terms of that. That's the old-fashioned way. And like for anyone who, like for those in law school, and I've read an article about this, there's like very basic language that it, for most contracts are written a certain way because that's just the standard, and that's how they taught to, to write it. I'm very different in terms of things like that, and I once got on the phone with a lawyer who, who tried to explain to me, and, and they were like saying, yeah, it's just, you know, there was a very ambiguous statement in the contract. And so they said, yeah, that's, that's just the way we write it, but it's understood in, in, in the industry that that's how it's read. And the problem was that when another lawyer looked at it, they said that, oh, no, I would interpret it this way. Well, that, that first lawyer said, no, this is how we interpret that. This is the problem. When there's ambiguity, it's subject to interpretation, and it depends on who's interpreting it. So either party can interpret it, or if it ends up going to a court of law or to an arbitrator, it's up to that interpretation. Yeah. So at the end of the day, forget about ambiguity. Make sure everything is very clear cut, cut and, you know, clear cut and dry as to what you want to say. So if the agreement was there will be a XYZ refrigerator that, that currently is in the unit that needs to be replaced, the owner has agreed to replace it with ABC unit, make sure it says that, not... They, the owner will replace it with a refrigerator. Right. A refrigerator is very ambiguous. Yep. You know, if I give you a little mini refrigerator, that's a refrigerator. Right. So that's not what we agreed to. They said ABC, we, want to, we will put in a GEXJ295, and I'm making that one that up. There's no real GEXJ295. Imagine there is. We should look at That'd that. That would be funny. <laughs> um, then put that in because that's what was agreed to. Or if yep. there's an existing unit, it's a frigidaire unit that is old but they said that we're going to replace it with this you know the same model because it's still manufactured brand new unit make sure it's in there and this applies to even if you're you're renting a place that if you're meeting with the real estate agent for a rental and they say yeah it's going to be all new appliances this is and this you want to make sure that in your lease agreement it says it's all new appliances yeah no it's funny you said that because um when my lawyer had looked at one of the contracts right. he pretty much sent it to me and then said, no, 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 ignore this one. I'm going to send you an updated one because there was one page which he just wanted rewritten right. by the seller's attorney right. because he said, this doesn't sound clean to me. Right. I just want to make sure that everything is exactly stated how we expect it to be. Yeah. And when I read it, I was like, oh, I have no idea what, what was being said there. Right. And I think that's what he wanted clarity on because it was just talking about something. Yes, but it wasn't very clear. What was it? I don't remember now because it's been so many years. But I'm sure if I look back at it, I could. So I, sometimes, yeah, the the legalese that's used is just so confusing. I I've seen things like non disclosure agreements and confidentiality agreements and just general agreements where there's a paragraph in there that I'm reading. It's like this makes no sense. Why why is it so wordy? Why is it so complicated when you could just say it in like ten words? Right. What it is. And, and I could tell that that was an old agreement because for the date, it had pre-populated right. 1-9, so, mm-hmm. you know, the 1990s or whatever, right. had the 1-9. So you just see them put a slash and make it yeah. 2000 or whatever. So you knew that they were pretty much taking on an old document and just 
making little adjustments, and that's why it wasn't clear. And I think over that last period, a lot has changed. Right. So since they're using an old document, they chose not to write a new one. That's why. And, and that's the thing about legal documents is most legal documents are templates. Yep. It's you have the original template and then you take that template and it's modified for every client <laughs> yep. and every customer that they work with and updated for what that particular situation is. So, and they call that a boilerplate template for, for anyone interested. It's a boilerplate. So most of the time that's what you're dealing with. And when you use companies like LegalZoom or Rocket Lawyer, most of those contracts that they have are boilerplate and then they just fill in the information based on what you provide them with. So it's important when you work with like a real estate attorney that even when they use a, a boilerplate, they have the experience and they have a team, uh, unless they work by themselves, they have the resources to take that boilerplate and then convert it into a full-fledged legal document that has all the bells and whistles that you need for your particular situation. It's not something where you can just go online and pull a copy of a, of a template and uh, then use it. There are certain things like non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, there's usually standard boilerplates for that. But at the end of the day, it's like they have to be customized for like every company, every business. Same thing with like all these documents for uh, rentals and for buying homes that even if you have a boilerplate, they have to customize it to meet the specific situation and the specific needs of the buyers and the sellers. Yep. So I'd say the next big step is once you've sorted everything out, right. you have to fill out an application. And this is probably the most annoying step in the whole process. Okay, now what is this application for? So this is the co-op essentially having you fill in an application. So it'll have all your private information, right. your personal information, social security, name, where you currently live. But there's a checklist of everything that you need to provide. Right. And now this is, oh, we want one year worth of bank statements right. from every bank that, that you bank with. Right. They'll want a letter from your workplace. Right. And he has me an official HR letter, company logo of mm -hmm. who you are, how long you've been there. Right. It'll need recommendation letters. Right. It could be, usually it's like two personal friends, or it might say one work recommendation, one right. personal or something like that. So what I generally say is, you know, have one work one and mm -hmm. one personal. Right. So I had at that time, my boss write me a letter and right. then a close friend write me a right. letter as well. And what you want to do is review it and make sure it covers different items that make you obviously look good. Exactly. <laughs> because they're trying else. to check your credibility to make sure that you're not going to be a per number one, that you are someone who is appropriate for their building. Yep. Because that's the thing about with, with co-ops is yes, the, it's at their discretion to let people yep. part of the co-op. And in doing so, they want to make sure that these are individuals who are reputable to represent the building because, and, and it's kind of, counterintuitive when you think about it because it's not like a company but in essence you're owning shares in the company that owns the overall building and so they don't want some someone coming into their building and then creating havoc right yeah and I'm, i mean you want to pick people who can articulate very well their words right so a lot of times someone asks me for a recommendation i'm like oh i'm not the greatest person to write something like that right but if you see some that someone's hesitant then i would just say pick somebody else right you know because it's a very important letter yeah um, that that you're given uh, that you have to give. So I would just pick someone who's comfortable with doing it. And there are a lot of people comfortable with it. There are a lot who aren't just because they don't want to write something like that. They don't know what to write. Right. And, and there are some people who just can't communicate it. Right. Like they understand what they have to do and they understand your character, but they're not able to convert that into, to, into 
a letter that can explain that and convey that same message. Right, exactly. So then you have that. And what you want to make sure is for any documentation that you provide, you black out all the... The confidential information. Right, exactly. So if you're giving bank statements, you know, you don't want your bank account number on there necessarily. But outside of that, you just want to usually give the first page of those statements. You don't need to give every last bit to it. They just need the first page to show that, all right, so you said you've been working with, you've been banking with this bank. They can prove that. Right. Work items, you know, they'll they'll usually give you some guidance on what you can black out, what you have to keep there. And... Generally, once you have all that stuff put together, you'll have to make multiple copies of the whole package. Right. It, it's it, Part of it is a very old school, very tedious as to how the process works. And unfortunately, for many buildings, we're, they're not at, at the stage where they're in the digital age where they can securely have this information submitted. There, I'm sure that there are like new property management companies when you're renting that you can submit that because I've seen that before where you can submit it digitally. But the fact is there are a lot of, especially when dealing with a board, it's an old school method and you don't want to send this stuff by email because if you do that, it's not going to be protected. It's not going to be encrypted. So it has to be really hard copy delivered. And most of the time they don't want to print it out themselves. They're just going to take the copies, hand it out to the board, they'll review it and then hopefully properly dispose of it. Right. And you also want to read their guidance on how they want it sorted. Some want you to use flags. I know for my friend, they, they needed him to use the, the colored flags right. to break down the different right. sections. For mine, they didn't actually require that. They just said, give me the one packet, and right. that's it. My packet, just so everyone knows, came out to about 60 pages. Right. So that's what you're looking at. Yeah, so it's like it's, 60 times how many copies you need. Right. How many copies did they ask for? They said four, and then you want one for yourself right. for reference. So you need five copies of that, essentially. And you just hold it there. You just store it and don't do anything with it, right? It just right. sits there, and that's pretty much it. But th- once you get that all together, you submit that to your your agent, and you know they'll work with the agent on the other side right. with all your documentation. Generally, they'll review the review the packet themselves just to be sure. Hey, we're not missing something. Right. But just note after that, the seller or the board can still ask you for more information. Right. It's not just what's in that packet. They may say, you know what. We look through this, but we feel we, we still want this much more information right. from you. And I had gone to my uh, real estate agent at one point and said, can they ask for all this stuff? And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. They can ask for anything they want. And if you don't provide it, they can just end it right there. Right. While it might be tedious, you do have to give all that information. Right. And, and you know, the other side of it is that Again, you, you have tapped into a real estate agent that works on your behalf. You also have tapped into a real estate attorney. Now, we can't specify everything that they could possibly ask for. And we're very generically saying that they can ask for anything. If there are questions as to whether something may be inappropriate that they ask for, then speak with your real estate attorney and also your real estate agent to be sure that these things are permitted because it may vary by state. Uh, there may be state laws or local laws in your region that say that they cannot ask for certain information. So in that case, because you are tapping into these resources, and don't just go to your real estate agent, also go to the attorney because the attorney will understand the legal side of things. Check with the real estate attorney just to be sure whether or not you need to provide that information and whether or not it's applicable based on your individual state's law. If your attorney says, no, this is something that's inappropriate, you can convey that back to your real estate attorney who will reconvey it to the representatives for the owner 
And then, of course, if they decide to say, hey, well, you didn't provide this, we can pull this, then that's a separate process to deal with. But again, you are tapping into professional resources. Use them because you're already paying for those resources. Yep. And one thing I'll say when you're thinking about starting this process, and usually this would be about a year before you, know, you take everything off, is that in terms of your bank accounts, right. you don't want to make inconsistent moves of money right because that's a red flag for them this is something that i was told where you know when they ask you for that one year what they're looking for are red flags of you moving money and if they see money just constantly moving right it's a red flag for them now it could be all legitimate stuff that you're doing but it's a red flag to them to say why does this guy keep moving like five thousand dollars now two thousand dollars now ten thousand dollars You want to avoid trying to do any of that type of stuff for that year's period. So right. when they're looking at it, they just see consistency, right? If you do direct deposit, okay, that, that makes sense. That's consistent money that's coming in twice a month. That's fine. Right. And they also see that one, you're earning steady income, you have a job that is consistent with what you've already told them. Right. And again, they can also ask for credit card statements, things like that. And you just... You don't want to purchase a lot of huge items because it might show that, oh, how reliable will this person be? Because if they're buying a lot of expensive items, are they going to be able to pay their mortgage? And I know it sounds ridiculous that they would think that, look at that, but it's true. I've been told this. They will look at that and it'll count against you because these are little red flags to them thinking, is this person reliable? And responsible. Right. And Again, they they're, pay, pay the right, stuff they're out. doing due diligence. And if you, you know, just, just put yourselves in their shoes when you're evaluating someone financially of whether or not they are safe to allow sale and to be able to pay things. Because remember, you think about it, outside of being able to pay the mortgage that you have to pay back to your bank, because that's the loan, you also have to pay your maintenance. And so they want to make sure that you're, you're able to do that. They also want to make sure there's job security because they don't want you coming back to say that, oh, well, you can't afford maintenance. The unit is going into default, things like that. Because the other thing they have to deal with is the bank is in possession. So they will need to be able to recover that as well. And then if they need to do that and go through a sale, now they have to go through the bank because the bank owns those shares. So they don't want to have to go through that complex process and deal with that because it costs them money too legally to manage that process. Because it's not someone who is already a homeowner. It's dealing with another party. And that's why generally, if you haven't paid your bank back for the value that they've loaned you, you're not going to have that right to go off and sell the unit before you've paid that off. I mean, I'm sure there are ways around that, but generally you're not going to be able to do that because the board's not going to let you do that and definitely the bank's not going to let you do that unless for some reason they see a legitimate reason to let you do that. Yep. Again, that's a big step. Once you get all that together and they're happy with all your documents, right. generally they're ready to move on. Mm-hmm. Right? They're ready to, okay, uh, let's get this going. And at that point, now you got to get your bank back involved because right. now they have to give you a commitment letter. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have the pre-approval letter. Right. Yes, okay, that got you to where you are now. Now we're serious about buying this place. Now you need the bank now to do the commitment letter. And right. Again, there's paperwork that needs to be handled. There'll be things that come from the attorneys where they just have to fill out. I'm not going to get into the details. I don't remember all the right, paperwork right. there. But they work with the bank, and they go back and forth. They'll say, the bank may say, I, I need this now from the seller. I need this now from the buyer. Right. And get all that stuff together. 
and you get all those forms filled out. And again, this isn't a quick process either. This could take a couple of weeks, right? Depending how quickly things move and how much back and forth there is, right? And now again, you're adding more parties to the equation, so you have to rely on each of these parties to do their due diligence, but also take this seriously and get things done on a timely basis. And that's not always guaranteed when you work with other third parties. Right, exactly. And then, you know, once you get that commitment, the bank has to just essentially clear that loan. And then pending that you pass your interview, you get to the closing and that closing date gets gets picked between the seller, making sure that the buyer can also make it. And that's probably the most nerve wracking day. And you have to get your arm ready to be signing like so many documents. Everything in like triplicate. (laughs) Yes. No, exactly. There's four or five copies that you're essentially signing. There's your copy, their copy, the lawyer's copy, the bank's copy. But that's when they bring everyone in there. There's someone that represents the bank, your attorney, their attorney, then the real estate broker. So you have everybody sitting in that one room. And essentially, you're just passing sheets around. Right. Oh, I signed it. And you signed here. Signs and it, yeah. you just pass it along, and then they turn the paper upside down. Mm-hmm. And you keep going. Right. And then at some point, if there's no issues, then you're good. They hand over the keys, and you're, you're all set. And they hand over the keys that day. That day, they hand yeah. over the keys. They bring it. And the the couple who owned it before me, they're very nice. They actually had had multiple copies of the keys, and like, well, I'm not gonna do anything with it. So here's all, all the keys. keys. Right, exactly. <laughs> they had like three copies of the keys. Right. Not um, to say that once you take the unit, you're not gonna change all your locks anyway. Right, exactly. Yeah. But they had they had no reason to have right. those keys anymore. Right. So they just say, oh, here's everything. You know, you, you talk on the side too because the lawyers might need to talk and figure so, stuff out. In my case, the bank people, they they left their location without all the checks. So they actually had to drive all the way back to the location to get the additional checks right. and come back because they, they didn't bring the number of checks that they needed to bring. Yeah, again, you know, dealing with third parties, this could have turned out very bad. And this is also the first time at closing when you meet the homeowners. You yes, have not no. talked to them or met them prior to. No. You'll, you'll know the names because right. they'll be on documentation, right. but you've never met them, and you're only going to meet them that one time, right. and that's really it. And everyone's sitting in that room, and I think mine took probably around two and a half hours okay. to get through all, everything. People talked, and that's really it. And once you get those keys, you know, you're ready to go, and then what you'll do is essentially work with the super. You know, they'll give you the phone number for the super to right. say, hey, when are you moving in? this and that, and they'll just schedule some time so that you can use like the freight elevator, things like that. But I think we've pretty much gone through all the real big steps right. that, that well, you're going to see. Let's talk about one thing, insurance, for example, because now ah, the thing is that yes. you have to have homeowner's insurance Yes, I did forget about during that, that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so pretty much in advance of the closing, mm-hmm. they'll tell you you have to buy insurance right. because now you can actually put that address in there because you're, you're practically ready, right? right? Uh, generally, once you hit the closing, it's rare that someone would just say, I don't want to sell to you now. You know, once you've set the date, that's pretty much said and done. Right, and the other thing is that if you've been renting a place previously and you've had renter's insurance, then you're probably going to be using the same company that you were getting your renter's insurance from to, to get homeowners homeowner's insurance with the exception of like if they haven't done a good job or if they don't cover what you need to switch or something like that but it's a pretty quick process you can do all that online yeah pretty much now you can pretty much get insurance right online yeah you don't need to talk to someone you 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 should get an email if you'd like to talk to someone live blah 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 or the exception is if you have to customize your insurance because it doesn't have certain offerings 
for example, like with renter's insurance, it, uh, most policies, they have a cap on like computer equipment. And yep. if you need something higher, you might be able to do that online or you have to speak to an agent in yep. order to get those adjustments. Exactly. I think at one point I did call them up because I had a question. Right. But that's really it. I mean, they're, they're, they're there for you, but most of that stuff is just done online pretty quick. That's not some process that takes forever to do like the other processes. But yes, the insurance is a critical one that you'll be asked for. And generally your lawyer will remind you, did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Right. Did you get it yet? So I just got to the point where I just, I just forwarded him the information. Like, yeah. here it is because I'm going to have to bring it anyway. Exactly. So he was like, if you just send me everything, I'll just make sure there's enough copies and bring it over so you don't have to worry about it. Right. Like, all you need to worry about is bring a pen with you. Right. They'll, they'll usually have pens because you'll be at, the, at, the, at in an office. Yeah. But you probably and, just want to bring and, a pen and, with and, you. You know, work, uh, you know, well, you work, work on, on your, your arm and wrist and make sure it's ready to go. To, right. To and sign you, you, know, you, you want your real signature. You don't want some chicken scratch uh, right. type of signature. Yeah, I, I see signatures all the time, like or little squiggly lines. And it's like, that's a signature? How, how would anyone know that that was an actual signature? Yep. So I would say going to closing... Bring two pens and bring a bag just because you're going to be bringing documentation with you. with you. Yeah. So you don't want to be like standing in the train or whatever with, with documents and you right. have everything out there. And you also get your certificate, you know, that you have the investment there. So you obviously want to keep that with you. Right. You know, that's a critical document there. You don't want to lose it. You don't want to get wet or something like that. But outside of that, once you've done all of that, you want to go back to your place <laughs> and just check it out and figure out what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of other questions I want to talk about. One is money in terms of what you need. And and I'm not going to ask you for your actual numbers, but generally what we're looking at is a range. Let's start off by the amount of a down payment, because I think down payments vary depending on different so, properties. Sometimes it's like in the range of like 20 to 30 percent, something like in that range. Yeah, I mean, I think long ago, you could get away with 15%, 15 to 20. Right. But a lot of them now, it's 20%. Yeah, and so 20%, 20 percent shows that you're payment. serious. Right. Right. And that's something that I was told. 20% is shows that you're pretty much serious and you really want to do this. Right. So what I did was put 20, 20%. I guess thinking wider, again, you want to know how much you're willing to spend to buy a place. Right. Right. You need to know your range because if you don't know that, you don't know how much to save. So I already knew what my range was. And I anticipated that I would be putting down 20%, right? Obviously, if I get away 15, sure. But I made sure I had the padding for 20%. That means I had money dedicated to buying a place that would be 20%. But again, you have to think about other costs, lawyer fees. There are other random fees that, that, that you'll get charged for. Usually, you'll have to pay one month or two month advance maintenance. Right. Think about when you're renting a place, right? You pay the back pay, right? The extra month or so. Then the closing costs and things like that. So you want that 20% plus I'd probably usually say around another 15 to 20 as padding because you want to, you want to account for things that you don't know what's going to happen. Right. But that shouldn't be part of your savings. You shouldn't be dipping into your savings accounts. Like, Oh no, I didn't, I didn't save enough. Let me pull from my savings now. You want to have that dedicated money to just purchasing your home. Right. As well as you also want to think about, like we said earlier, you know, what type of construction are you going to have to do? How much money is it going to take to repaint the place? Do whatever initial cleanup. All of that stuff. You want to make sure you have money for that because once you're ready to move in, same as moving costs, right? If you're going to hire a moving company, how much is that going to cost? Are you going to rent a U-Haul? Do you need a driver? Is someone going to drive it for you? Do you know somebody? 
you want to take all of that and make sure you have that money and the padding for that. And that's why I say 20 grand would probably be a good padding in general. Again, it really depends where you live too. Right. I'm specifically talking about New York. So I just know that obviously costs are a certain level. Right. So that just gives you your padding. Let's throw an example here. Let's say that the home that you were going to buy, and I want to use a low number just to make it simple. Let's say the home was $150,000. Now, probably in New York, the only place you're going to find $150,000 nowadays is deep out into the suburbs or maybe further up upstate somewhere that you might find a house somewhere. Mm -hmm. But most of it, you're not going to find that sort of number anywhere. Yep. Uh, if you head towards the middle of the country, maybe on the West Coast, you may be able to, to get away with some numbers right. like that, but probably not. Yep. But I'm just going to use a low number just for uh, easy calculation. Okay. So let's say it's $150,000. So 20% of that is $30,000. So your uh, down payment is $30,000 that you would have to have in your bank account available to hand over as your down payment. You can't. This is not money that you're going to be borrowing. This is the money that you have to have on hand. So that's $30,000 first. Then you're going to have the mortgage on the remaining. So the remaining $120,000 you're going to get from the bank. You're going to pay a mortgage on that. And that's normally going to be the remaining $120,000 plus whatever the interest rate is. Right. And you're going to pay that over a period of uh, right, 30 20, years. 20, 30 years, yeah. whatever that, that time frame is. And the other thing, you know, at the beginning when I was talking about the pricing of homes, you know, being like over a million is the bank is also not going to loan you more money than you have available to repay them. If you make $60,000 a year with no savings, bare minimum checking account, and you want to buy a $500,000 home, well, the bank's not going to loan you all that money. Forget about it. That's not going to happen. So you have to look at something realistic. But let's say you have over the last 10 years, you've saved up a, a good amount of money and you have a steady job, and you're buying this $150,000 home, you probably then will have your $30,000 for your down payment. But on top of that, when you talk about things like closing costs and legal and things like that, you're saying that you probably want to have something like another $20,000 on hand. So now we're looking at you want to have at least $50,000 that will be available in your bank accounts to put forward to buy this home. So that you have to keep in mind. Plus, on top of that now, you have to, after you dish out that $50,000 that comes out, you're still going to have your 120000 plus interest mortgage that you're going to pay spread out over your 30 years, plus you're going to pay your maintenance on top of that. So you're going to have to have a mortgage and you have maintenance. And that's also not including now any improvements that you want to make to your home, any moving costs that you have to pay for, things that aren't covered. Let's say your electricity is covered, but your gas is not covered, or you need internet or phone service, things like that or cable TV, those are additional costs. So now this gives you a very good idea of the amount of money you really need to have available to cover that because after you cover all your daily expenses, you then have to start building a reserve again for a rainy day in the event something happens. So that's what I want you to to have in mind when you look at the costs involved in buying a home is that it's not going to be something where you're going to pull money out of the sky. The bank is not going to loan you all this money. You have to have some cash available to pay for this stuff and then be able to long-term continue to pay off what you owe the bank and what you need to pay for maintenance and other day-to-day essentials. Yeah, I mean, I think a tip that I would give is to open up a separate bank account. Savings, checking. Get that down payment amount into that savings, but get some money off of that, right? Interest and whatever. 
now let's talk about a year before all of this is happening. Right. Right. When you just start looking, you're already getting the money ready because you know in your mind how much it's going to cost. You get that down payment into that savings. That extra 20K, you should have that again too. Right. We'll get that into savings as well, or you leave in checking. But what you want to do is throughout that year, while you're going through this process, when you get paid, take a portion of that check, put it into that bank account. Right. Just set up something to transfer. Even if it's you, 200 you, bucks. Right. You could do the internal transfer or most of the time at your job, you can probably set up your direct deposit so it direct deposits into multiple bank accounts right. as well. Exactly. So you just put a portion of that. That way, in that year where you're going through all of this, you're putting new money into that reserve because if something does come up, now you have all that extra money saved. Right. And you can use that for that. But you don't have to. Right. Right. It's more of that's your backup backup plan because you need it. You right. have to continue to save money because this is going to go into all the extra stuff. Like you said, if you are if you have internet, now you're, you're paying your mobile phone, all that. You want to put that into a separate bank account so that you're not touching your main account. Your main account would be used for what you're already doing to, to survive today. Right. But you're looking towards your future. That should be what that other bank account yeah. is for. Initially, you have to pay half the down payment, then the second half. Then you're paying everything else in halves as well. And that's going to slowly go down. But the whole point is that now you've been saving extra money, that's going to slowly go up as well. So by having that, you've created yourself a security blanket and it, it'll, it'll put you in a safer place because you're not wasting time. You're using that time to continue to build cash flow into that. Right. And you have to because you can't wait until you're ready to buy a home and then start to save money because you're right. not going to have enough time to do that. So what you need to be doing early on is if your plan, your master plan is to own your own home, during the time when you're renting, you have to do whatever you can to, to save money. And your thinking doesn't have to be that the amount of money that I'm saving right now is for a home. It could be your rainy day funds in the event that right. for some reason you lose your job or something happens and you need to tap into that. But you start building that. And then when you get to a certain point where now you've saved enough money, you can then say, okay, let me look at the homes that I'm interested in. Oh, I found a few options. What are they going to cost me? And you have to look at, okay, what these are the asking prices. Take that 20% calculation and see, do I have 20% for the down payment? So in the $150,000 example, do I have 30000 saved up for that? I do have $30,000 for my 20% down payment. Now I need for closing and legal and all the other stuff, another 20000 So do I have $50,000 saved up because I must have that available? Okay, I do. Then the next part is, okay, when I do convert from paying rent that I pay every month to paying a mortgage and also my maintenance, do I have enough money to cover that? Because if I don't, well, now you have a new problem there because where am I going to get that money? But if you do, then you're in a better position. Again, remember, you have to be able to afford your down payment, all your costs associated with buying your home up through closing, and also be able to pay your mortgage pay your maintenance, and live off of that. Right, because at that point, you don't want to start struggling just to right. figure out, okay, where am I going to get these funds for? Exactly. But again, like you said, your basic living, you still need to account for that, right? You right. need the money so you can do that. Plus, and this is why I say go the separate bank account route because at least you know what that account is for and what you've dedicated to so you don't touch it for other things. Exactly. A good way to look at how you're managing your finances now is to look at how you deal with your current life when you just pay rent. Because when you pay rent, have your rent, you pay your utilities, you pay your day-to-day -day expenses, how are you managing? What are you saving? And you have to start building a formula that works for you to be able to save enough money to move from renting a place to buying a place. And if you haven't come up with that formula 
and start applying that formula, you're not going to be able to do that. And also don't expect that coming out of college, for example, you're going to be able to buy a home unless you're making a ton of money somewhere. But for the average individual, it may be anywhere between five to seven years before you build up everything that you need to afford. And look, as time goes by, unfortunately, the housing markets are getting worse because everything's getting more expensive. So by the time you buy, and like I said, with our example, 150000 a year, you're probably not going to find anything. Most of the places that I see in New York, for example, easily you could, could be up over a half a million dollars to be on. So it becomes a lot harder. Whereas if you go to other parts of the, of the country where the costs are lower, yes, you may be able to better afford that. But then, well, are you going to actually move to those other places? But if you're living in New York, for example, it's a tough buy right now to be able to do it, especially if you're single, you have one salary, and if you're making like $60,000 a year, I would say that's a very tough. Even if you're making anything under $100,000 and you're trying to find something in the city, probably not going to happen. You have to go out further in Brooklyn, in Queens, Staten Island, maybe upstate. You might be able to find some places that are less expensive, but then you have to add in things like your commute take into account. So it varies. But yes, it gets tougher as time goes by versus 20 years ago. Yeah, it wasn't unreasonable to, f- to find a home that was probably $150,000 or less. I'm not saying you can find it. I'm saying that it's going to be a tough sell, especially if you set up a lot of criteria, like it needs to be close to schools and close to supermarkets, close to the transportation and things like that. So it is a lot harder to find that nowadays. I guess, did you have any other questions that you had? I know you went through a bunch of them, but I guess, was there anything else? What are things that people should watch out for that you would say, these are the most important things that you want to be aware of right now? I guess reiterate, take your time. Don't rush into anything. Make sure everything meets your criteria as far as finding a place. Don't sell yourself short. Just go through it. Take your time. There's no reason to rush it because, you know, you're going to create your own timeline, but you should take notes and just, again, break down everything. What are you going to do? How much money are you going to have saved? Good planning goes a long way. If you don't have that, then there's no way you're going to do this smoothly. And not to say this is going to run smoothly even if you're fully planned. You don't know what you're going to run through. Yeah, your experience will vary depending on your particular situation, what you're dealing with. Exactly. So there's that. Then don't get frustrated. You're going to be asked for a lot of documents that you have to submit. You got to do this. You got to follow this process. Now you have to work with this person and that person. And you might get frustrated with a certain person that you're working with whether it's the bank or maybe the seller that's asking for too much or something else, don't get frustrated. It's all part of the process. You're not alone. A lot of people go through this. There's no such thing as an easy buy process. Right. Hopefully one day there will be. Right, exactly. And at the end of the day, again, just relax. There's no reason to freak out over anything. But just know that, look, there's a potential if you're doing a co-op type thing. Right. The board may reject you, but it's not necessarily because of you itself. It could just be something that they just don't see in documentation that they're looking for. And they could be very specific right. to something, very needy on, on some point. Don't take it personally. Unfortunately, after a certain point, certain money is lost in terms of a down payment and things like that. And this is, again, why good planning does work out. But sometimes in terms of when it comes down to that interview, and if it is a co-op and there's a board... Something might happen, but there's nothing that can account for that. What you can do is just put your best face forward at that point right. and just make things work as well as they can. I think confidence in yourself is probably the best thing that you can have. Right. If, if you're not confident in yourself and your presentation, 
that's probably going to be given off to the people who are asking you the questions that are on the board. Completely makes sense. Hopefully this provides you with some insight if you are looking to buy your, your first home or even if you bought your first home and there are things that you can take away from this or that perhaps others have asked you about and you find some value in this, we hope that this helps you in some way, shape, or form. We appreciate you listening to the David and Ronald Show podcast. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and on Spotify. Until next time, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.